This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It is found on pages 726 through 727 in the Pew Bibles. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice. At the voice of him who, uh, who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for me? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Thank you, Stan. What brings you joy? What makes you joyful? When was the last time you had great joy? I remember last summer, about this time of year, I had great joy when my San Antonio Spurs defeated the Miami Heat. That brought me great joy. I don't know if you follow professional basketball at all, but uh, the year before, the Spurs in 2013 had been in the finals and had lost to the Miami Heat. In fact, in game six, they were up by several points with just a few seconds left, and somehow they lost the game, and they ended up losing the series, and all year were kind of bemoaning the loss of, of losing to the Heat in 2013. So it was great joy. It was with great joy that we, we beat them, and I saw them defeat them and, and get revenge. That brought me great joy last summer. What brings you joy? When was the last time you were joyful? Of course, I remember in October of 2013, I had great joy when my favorite baseball team, the Boston Red Sox, won the World Series. Uh, it was an incredible story. The year before, they, had, they were in last place, and so they went from worst to first, and this was a great team to cheer on. They, they were known for their, their long beards and their timely hitting. Uh, it was just a great season, a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of great joy. Of course, what happened to the Red Sox the very next year? They went back to last place. In fact, the Spurs this year, uh, while they were defending NBA champions, they did make it to the playoffs, but only as a sixth seed. They ended up losing the first round. The fact is that my joy that I have in sports and watching my sports teams win championships is usually short-lived. What brings you joy? Where does your joy come from today? 
course, I imagine each one of us have some days that we have great joy, bring great joy in our minds. I know the birth of each one of my children, what Hannah, Elizabeth, and John, each one of those days were filled with great joy. I had great joy on my wedding day, May 26, 2001. It's in my wedding band, written in there, in case I forget the date. That was a day of great joy. I imagine we all have some days that are landmark days where we experience great joy. What are your landmark days of joy? A graduation, a wedding, the birth of a child. As followers of Jesus, should our joy be limited to certain landmark days, certain events? Or should we, as Paul writes to the Galatians, bear fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? In fact, according to Paul's writing, it seems like we should always have joy in our hearts. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. But how is that possible? How is it possible to always have joy, to rejoice in the Lord? How is it possible to rejoice when someone criticizes you, or we receive bad news, or we go through a hard time? How are we supposed to rejoice when things don't go our way? If you were with us last week, you know we've begun a new sermon series called Joyful Living. It's a journey through Philippians. And we've been talking about how Paul writes to the church in Philippi while he's in prison. And you can read his letter and find that he has great joy. He uses the word joy. In fact, in the Greek, that uh, term joy is, appears 16 different times, uh, some version of that, whether it be rejoice or having joy, 16 different times. And yet Paul writes this while he's in prison. It doesn't matter his circumstances. He has great joy. Where did Paul's joy come from? What was it that made him joyful? As we look at the Apostle Paul, we might discover where our joy should come from as well. So to find out where Paul's joy came from, what, what, what it was exactly that made him joyful, I invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. That may be found on page 1247 of your pew Bible. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Listen to the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart from and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you 
again. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, please speak through me. The words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As we talked about last week, Paul is in a Roman cell, guarded by imperial Roman soldiers. This is no country club prison like we have today for white-collar crimes. No, the Philippians have heard about Paul's imprisonment in Rome, and they're concerned about him, and so they've sent him a gift Because they knew that in the first century, there was no guarantee that as a prisoner, you would receive three square meals. So they've sent him some money so that he might have food and might be able to survive in the midst of his imprisonment. And Paul now writes this letter, the letter to the Philippians, as a letter of thanks, thanksgiving to them, but also as a a word of encouragement to let them know that despite his imprisonment, it's okay. In fact, God, God is still at work and he can see it. Now, one might think that if Paul is in prison, it would be hard for him to continue to preach the gospel. I mean, he's in prison, right? Who would he be able to interact with? One might think that the good news would not be able to come from Paul's lip in the midst of his hard time and his imprisonment, in the midst of the pain and the suffering that prison brings, of the isolation and the loneliness. But if you'll remember in Acts chapter 16 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul first went to Philippi, He preached the gospel to a woman named Lydia, and she and her entire household came to faith, and he began the church with Lydia. And then if you were to read the rest of Acts 16, describing Paul's time in in Philippi, eventually uh, he cast a demon out of a woman, and this slave woman was uh, prophesying for her slave owners, and so now that the demon's gone, she can't speak at all anymore with uh, any kind of prophetic words. And so uh, they get thrown into prison. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. And while Paul and Silas are in prison, Are they groaning? Are they moaning? Are they saying, woe is me? No. In fact, in Acts 16, we read the exact opposite is happening. They're singing hymns and praises to God. And in the middle of the night, in the midst of these songs of praises and prayers to God, an amazing earthquake happens. And the doors of the prison are actually opened. And the bonds that are holding the prisoners are set free. Well, this Roman jailer who's watching the prison in Philippi knows that if the prisoners escape, he will be killed, most likely crucified. And so he decides, rather than have to suffer through a crucifixion, he decides to kill himself. But right before he can do it, Paul says, stop, don't. We're all still here. Don't kill yourself. And then in desperation, the jailer who knew that Paul and Silas were men of God asks him, Acts 16, verses 30 through 33, we read this. Then he, the jailer, brought them out, brought out Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this jailer's wondering, what must I do to be saved from certain death for the prisoners being set free? But Paul and Silas, they know what he really needs to be saved from. And so they say, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Paul and Silas know that this man needs to be saved from his sin, from the punishment of his sin, for the the guilt of his sin. And, And only in the Lord Jesus do we find such salvation. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. From the story of Paul's time in prison in Philippi, We know that when Paul is in prison, that doesn't thwart him or hinder him from preaching the gospel. Paul will preach the gospel to whoever will listen. And now Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And he's writing from a Roman cell and he's writing to them and and he's telling them that I've been preaching the gospel. In fact, my, my imprisonment has actually helped further the gospel. Because at that time, imperial guards would watch a prison cell for four hours at a time. And so there's 24 hours a day. That meant that Paul had an opportunity to be exposed to six different jailers at a time each day. And and as he got to meet these jailers, he would tell them the good news of Christ. And as other prisoners learned while Paul was in prison, they got to hear the gospel of Christ. So Paul's like, don't worry about me. God is using my imprisonment to help further the kingdom of God, to help advance the gospel. What doors has God opened for us to help share the gospel with others. Paul saw his imprisonment as an open door, as an opportunity to help share the gospel with jailers who would have never otherwise heard it, imperial guards who would not have heard it, prisoners who would not have heard it. What doors has God opened us in our places of work, within our neighborhoods, within our social circles, among our children's friends, at their schools, or within their activities? What doors has God opened for us so that we might share the gospel with them. Paul's evangelistic boldness in prison has actually helped inspire the Christians in the city of Rome to be even more bold in their proclamation. They're thinking, wow, if Paul is bold in preaching, even in prison, how much bolder shouldn't we be with the freedom that we have out in the city? As Presbyterians, has our evangelistic boldness ever inspired anyone else to share the gospel? I'm glad you're not laughing because for the most part, we're not known for our evangelistic boldness. We're kind of known as the frozen chosen. We often leave the evangelism to the folks across the street, right? The Baptists, we'll let them evangelize. We'll we'll do things decently and in order. Have you ever heard of Dr. Horace Newton Allen? That's a picture of him. Dr. Horace Newton Allen. Horace Newton Allen was a Presbyterian medical missionary who was the first Protestant missionary ever sent to Korea in 1884. And by 1885, he had established the first modern medical facility in Korea. Now, put that in historical context for us here in Amarillo, the city of Amarillo was founded in 1887. So he is in 1885 opening the first medical missionary clinic. And our church was actually founded in 1890. In fact, on September 27th, we're going to celebrate our 125 years. We're going to celebrate uh, God's faithfulness through our church on September 27th. 125 years of God's faithfulness. While this church is getting started, Dr. Horace Newton Allen is diligently working in Korea as a medical missionary. And Horace uh, Horace, uh, Newton Allen's medical missionary work got underway in Korea in 1884, and it flourished immensely. I think, in fact, I think it's interesting to note that one of the local mission projects that we're most excited about, of course, is Heal the City, led by our own Dr. Alan Keister. We've got lots of doctors in our church who are volunteering with that on Monday nights to have this free medical clinic for those who do not have insurance. 
And medical missions is really a part of our DNA as Presbyterians. God has been using medical missions through the Presbyterian Church to help grow his kingdom in amazing ways. And in 1885, Dr. Horace Newton Allen opened the first modern medical hospital in Korea where he was able to heal patients and share the good news of Jesus. He was able to offer them medicine and prayer so they might come to know Christ. And now, just 130 years later, the Presbyterian church that Dr. Horace Allen Newton helped start in Korea has 9 million members. 9 million members. Now, if you took every Presbyterian denomination in the United States, and we've got a lot of them now, uh, there's ECO, there's the PCUSA, there's the PCA, the EPC, the OPC. I mean, we have divided in many times. If you took all of us together, cumulatively, we have about 2.2 million. And the population of the United States is about, is 318 million. 318. So, 318 million people in the United States, and there's 2.2 million Presbyterians. In Korea, the population is 50 million, South Korea, 50 million, and there are 9 million Presbyterians in South Korea. That's amazing. There have been Presbyterians in the United States since three, for over 375 years, since the 1600s. There have been Presbyterians in Korea for only 130 years, since 1884, 1885. What happened to the Presbyterians in the United States? When did we lose our evangelical fervor, our evangelistic fervor? Do we think evangelism is just for the Baptists and the Church of Christ? Is that why we don't do it? We tell someone else to do that for us? Now, as you walked in this morning, you may have noticed that there was a little insert. This is actually called a tract. I know Presbyterians don't usually use a lot of tracts, but this is what this is. And, uh, you know, we use this. This is a tool to help share the gospel with someone, to help share the good news. It has some key scriptures, and we'll go over it here in a minute. And I know that as Presbyterians, we're not really known for evangelism. We kind of often look to the Baptists and the Church of Christ to do that. But the fact is, as Presbyterians, we're all Christians. And all of us have been called to go and make disciples of Jesus, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So whether you're Church of Christ or Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, we're called to go and make disciples to share the good news. It's not like Jesus looked at all the denominations one day and said, okay, I want the Baptists to evangelize and baptize. I want the Methodists over here to write songs and sing. I want the Episcopalians over here to say prayers and kneel and and, and do the Lord's Supper and communion. And I want the Presbyterians, I want you guys to form a committee and then you can make sure that everyone else is doing what their job in a decently and orderly fashion. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, I want all of you to go and make disciples. I want all of you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we have good news to share. The good news of God's Son, the good news of God's love, that God loved us so much that he, he didn't abandon us in our sin, but He sent His Son, born as a baby in a manger, who grew up among us, taught us, healed us, ultimately died for us on a cross so that our sins could be atoned for. And then on the third day, He rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. We have the gift of eternal life, the assurance of eternal life if we simply Believe in Him. Now, as you know, on October 23rd, 2013, we voted as a congregation 438 to 16 to join a new denomination. It's called ECO. It stands for Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. And that E is very important, evangelical. Now, in our current modern day and age with politics, evangelical has gotten kind of a bad name or bad rap, but it's a great word because it comes from the same root as the word evangelist. And every time you read the word evangelist in the Bible, it comes from the Greek word eugelistes. 
And the Eugelistus was the person who brought the Eugelion, which is the good news or the gospel, to the people. An evangelist is simply someone who brings good news to people. So every time you read the word gospel, it's Eugelion. And every time you read the word evangelist, it's Eugelistus. Yes, evangelical. It's good to be an evangelical, one who shares the good news about God's love. In fact, the Bible and the, the, the Bible, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written by the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they tell the good news of Jesus, of his love, of his sacrifice, of his resurrection. So how do we share that good news today exactly? Well, as Presbyterians, we know that evangelism actually begins with prayer. Effective evangelism begins with prayer. We know that conversion, if someone comes to Christ, it's ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we do. It's, it's God working through us and through our words and working on the hearts of other people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit or except by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that ultimately brings someone to faith. And so we've got to, as one faint, uh, preacher once said, we, we, don't, we shouldn't talk to a person about God until we first talk to God about that person. If there's someone in our life who doesn't know Christ, who, who isn't in a church, who's far from God, we need to begin to talk to God about that person. And then as we talk to God about that person, we need to pray that God might give them ears to hear and that God might give us the words to speak. So when it comes time to talk, what are we to say? Well, I'm going to walk you through this. This is just a simple tool. You don't have to use this, but this is just one way to, among many to share your faith. And I used this in Cuba. I used to uh, go on these mission trips to Cuba where I'd do door-to-door evangelism, and it was amazing. In a given day, I might share the gospel with 38 people, and 35 of them would come to Christ. It was amazing. It's not because I'm a great evangelist. It's simply because the Word of God is powerful and effective. Well, you open up and you say, hey, may I ask you a question? People usually open a question and say, has anyone ever taken you through the Bible and shown you how you could be assured of eternal life, or, or as it says here, how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven? Well, if they've never heard the good news, this is an opportunity. Well, the good news be- begins with some bad news, and then there's some good news. The bad news is about us, and the good news is about God, of course. The bad news is, is that Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, sin uh, means to miss the mark. Every time we lie, steal, hate, cheat, we miss the mark of God's perfection that he has laid out for us. Let's let's suppose that you and I had a contest, and we would use this contest in Cuba. We'd talk about, well, let's say we were trying to throw a baseball from Cuba to Florida. Well, you might be able to throw a baseball further than I can, but none of us would be able to throw a baseball from Cuba to Florida. It's just too far a distance. We're all going to fall short of that standard. The reality is that in our lives, we all fall short. And God loves us, but also God is just. And as we stand before God's judgment seat, we're all found guilty of sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the scripture tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wage of sin is death. As I stand before God's judgment seat, I am found guilty of sin, and my sin is deserving of punishment, and the punishment for my sin is, is death. The Bible says that by sinning, we have, we have earned death. That means we deserve to die and be separated from God forever. But the good news is, and I, when I would talk about and doing this in Spanish, I always, it was the Buenas Noticias. The good news, and I was always eager to get to the Buenas Noticias to share with them. The good news, because they're like, who's this American? Tell me I'm a sinner. So the good news is Romans 5.8, and I quote it every Sunday here as a part of the assurance of pardon. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, I intentionally quote Romans 5, 8 every Sunday because my hope and prayer is that that word, those words of Scripture will become your own. And after hearing them time and time again, like saying the Lord's Prayer time and time again, they become our own so that when we're asked what is the gospel, we can quote Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They use the illustration here that we can all relate to. Suppose you're in a hospital bed and you're dying because you have cancer. If it was possible for me to take the cancer cells out of your body and then put them into my body, what would happen to you and what would happen to me? Well, you would live and I would die. Well, that's what God has done for us and his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is without sin, took on our sin so that we might be saved. As I stand before God's judgment seat, I am sentenced to death. My, my, I've been found guilty of sin and my sentence, my just punishment is death, the eternal separation from God. But Jesus Christ, who was without sin, who was born in a baby and as a manger, lived among us, healed us, taught us, and then ultimately died for us as a sacrifice for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, proving to be victorious over sin and death on our behalf. That victory, that joy, that gift can be ours simply through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Just as you have faith that you're, the pew you're sitting in right now has the strength to hold you of no effort of your own. You didn't make those pews. You just walked in and sat down in them. So we must have faith and trust in Christ. And then this is the, this is the, the seal of the deal. You just say, is there anything preventing you from trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Is there anything preventing you from receiving this gift of assurance of eternal life? Like I said, on a given day, I would usually preach about 38 and 35 would say, yes, there's nothing preventing me from trusting in Christ. And so then I invite them to pray with me and there's a sinner's prayer at the bottom here. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin deserves to be punished. I believe Christ died for me and rose from the grave. I trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I now have in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you don't have to pray that specific prayer. And let them know that prayer is not what saves them. It's putting your faith in Christ. But the way that we communicate that we have our faith in Christ is that we pray to God. And so, why don't I'll pray and you follow after me. And you can simply say, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner in need of your grace. And I confess my sin. I thank you for the gift of your son. And I put my trust in him. And I confess that Jesus alone is Lord. I ask him to come into my heart. And then we kind of close it up here with John 5, 24. Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And then you ask him, what happened? Did you hear God's word as I shared it with you? Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that word. Did you believe it? Yeah, I, I believe that. Well, you've passed from death to life. You now have the assurance of eternal life. But the way that you grow in your faith is by talking to God each and every day, praying to God as we just did a moment ago. And then also by reading his word. And I would usually give him a Bible and say, you know, and this says, interestingly enough, it says start in Philippians. I would encourage people to read the gospel of Mark. It tells the story of Jesus and it's the shortest one, 16 chapters. But Philippians is only four chapters. Maybe that's why they want you to read it, knowing that most people are lazy, I guess. (laughs) But all that to say, it's very easy for us to share the good news, to share the good news of God's love. And what's important here is not so much that you use a tract or that you use these phrases, but that you use the word of God. For we know that the word of God will return, it will complete all that it was sent out to do. As we read in Ephesians chapter 55, verses 10 through 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
So shall my word, God's word, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When we share the good news of God's love, when we share God's word with others with humility and respect, that word, that seed is planted and it will accomplish all that God wants it to do. As Presbyterians, we know that conversion is not about me, it's about God. But God wants to use me to share his word. You want to know why Paul had joy in the midst of prison? Because Paul was able to see how his time in prison was helping advance the gospel. Paul's joy was found in doing whatever he could to help advance the gospel. And that is where real joy is found. When God, guided by the Holy Spirit, is able to use us to help further his gospel, to help further his kingdom by sharing the good news with others. Who in your life Does God want you to share the gospel with today, this week? Who in your place of work or in your neighborhood or within your children's uh, playmates or within their schools or within their play activities, who is it that you know who doesn't yet know Christ, who's far from God? Who does God want you to share the gospel with today? Because that's where the real joy is found, sharing the good news of God's love and seeing someone receive it and knowing that that will make an eternal difference in their lives. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you, by your Spirit, have empowered us to share that good news with others, the good news of your love that you demonstrated towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would give us boldness and give us eyes to see opportunities, doors that are open for us to share the gospel. Just as Paul took every opportunity while in prison to share the gospel with the prisoners and the jailers that were around him, Lord, may you help us to take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel with those we come in contact with. Oh, Lord, by your Spirit, may you guide us and lead us each and every day as we seek to do the work of your kingdom, as we seek to advance your gospel to the glory of your name. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.